I just, I'm not sure I can ever do it again on that book. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah, you definitely get to that stage. Absolutely. I can so understand that that process as well. Because with every person who gave me feedback, it was me completely redrafting it. And just certainly isn't the version that you vomit drafted three years ago. No. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, So please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to a very special and something a little different episode of Rights for Women. I'm actually behind the scenes today and I've been editing a very special episode featuring two debut authors who are going to be talking on the Convo couch about their crime fiction debuts. The first is Danuka McKenzie. Danuka is an Australian writer and a book addict. Her debut crime fiction manuscript, The Torrent, won the 2020 Banjo Prize. It was entered as flood debris at the time and was published by HarperCollins very recently, actually just a few weeks ago in February. Her unpublished manuscript, Taken, was longlisted for the 2020 Ritual Prize. I remember around that time Danuka seemed to be everywhere winning all these prizes, which was just amazing. When she's not writing, Danuka works in the environmental sector and volunteers as part of the team behind the Writers Unleashed Festival. Joining Danuka on the Convo Couch is Ray Kane, is a former youth worker turned crime writer. She writes crime with heart, thriller and suspense novels featuring every man and every woman characters. Her first novel, The Good Mother, comes out on March 30 and was shortlisted for the Best Debut Crime Fiction in the 2021 Ned Kelly Awards. Now, that might seem a little weird because I've just said the novel's coming out next week, but it's already been shortlisted for a major award. And that's because Ray initially self-published her book. It was an independent publication last year and has been picked up by HarperCollins after being shortlisted for the Ned Kelly. So it's a very different path to publication for Ray and a really interesting story. The Good Mother draws on Ray's background as a youth worker, mentoring disadvantaged youth, many of them children of the paramilitaries in Northern Ireland during the final years of the trouble. And I have to say, Ray is also a very good friend of mine, a member of my writing group, The Inkwell, and a trusted writing buddy. So it's fantastic to see Ray's work getting out there to a wider audience. And I'm currently reading the new edition, and it's even better than the first time around. So that's always brilliant. So when I spoke to Ray and Danuka about doing this episode, you know, it struck me that they were both in a very similar position. They're writing in sort of similar genres, crime slash thriller. They've both got their first novel coming out and even they've had different paths to publication. I just thought it would be really interesting to see how their experiences are the same and how they've been different. So I invited them to take up a pew on the Convo couch and I just said to them, it would be great to just have you two chatting and for us as listeners to be able to basically eavesdrop on your conversation. So I've just finished editing this episode and that's exactly what it is. It's a fantastic conversation between two really talented authors talking about their paths to publication, their experience as, you know, debut authors, putting their books out there and a whole lot of other things to do with writing. I know you're going to love this episode, this chat between Ray and Danuka. And for me, it's been really good to be on the other side of the desk for a change. As much as I love chatting to authors, it's really nice to just sit back and listen in. So I do hope you enjoy it. Grab a cuppa, sit sit back and listen to Ray Cairns and Danuka McKenzie chat books and writing on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Hello everyone and welcome to the Rights for Women podcast. My name is Danuka McKenzie and I'm the author of The Torrent, which is my debut crime fiction novel released by HarperCollins Australia in February this year. With me is the lovely Ray Cairns, 
also HarperCollins author and whose debut, The Good Mother, a fast-paced crime thriller set in Northern Ireland and Australia, is about to be released in April. Hi, Ray. How you going? Hi, Danuka. <laughs> so much fun to do this with you. I know. This is so much fun. And thank you so much to Pam Cook for allowing us to do this. This is very cool. So the lovely Pam invited us both on this combo couch, this Zoom combo couch, to... <laughs> To chat about our experiences as debuts and as, I guess, crime writers and about our experiences both writing and getting to the process of publication. So there's a whole lot of things, I guess, to unpack there. But I thought we might maybe start with telling the listeners where we actually first met. We were chatting about this two days ago. We actually thought we'd met at the Bad Sydney Crime Festival, but that wasn't true. No, was it? We actually met the year before in 2019 at the lovely Joanna Nell, the book launch of it was uh, Mrs. Mrs. Henry Parker. No, it was oh, Mrs. Mrs. Henry Parker. Yeah, it was so lovely. And she's such a generous kind of writer. And I don't know if you can remember this, but she was in the launch speech. She was talking about why she invited all of us there. And she had this lovely thing where she said, we invited a number of emerging writers here because I really feel that they're close. And, I, and that's always stuck with me, actually. She did too. Yeah. The writing industry in Australia is just phenomenal and so supportive of upcoming writers, emerging writers. Yeah. Like that's a perfect example of inviting us to a launch. And you're so right. So generous. And I, so there's a few things to chat about there, but I thought we would maybe start with thinking a little bit about our respective books. And I thought, because it's really good, because we're both obviously writing crime, but I think there are quite a few kind of similarities or very similar themes. And in particular, I guess, the centering of a very strong female protagonist at the heart of both of our books. So I just wanted to ask you, was that always going to be the case for you? When you started writing, you absolutely knew that Sarah was going to be at the heart of your book? Absolutely. I knew it was only ever going to be from one point of view yep. because I wanted that, the uncertainty that you have with her about her assessment of her situation. I wanted that to be a question mark in, in the, the reader. Sarah's strong and she's strongly opinionated, but she is very much a loner. She closes herself off to everyone. So I wanted the reader to have that experience too. We're only really seeing the world through her eyes and her point of view. Yeah, that's so true because one of the things that really struck me reading The Good Mother was the fact that how affected Sarah is by her past and how that is post-traumatic stress has affected her present day decision making her parenting and how that really shades almost everything that she does and it is that kind of shades of what is it the, the uh, narrator who's not unreliable you know, narrator unreliable. that's the uh, word I'm yeah. looking for that's exactly yeah, so, right. yeah. so I actually wanted to I wanted to play with that idea yeah. that there was a lot of unreliable narrators around and I wanted the audience really that the reader really questioning that I think also as women we are not encouraged to trust our instincts as much in many situations. And I really wanted that with, I don't know, if a man has a gut feeling, <laughs> it's acceptable, but if a woman has an instinct, it's sometimes anxiety mm. or overreaction. And I just wanted to play with that a little bit and have the reader questioning their own prejudices, that decision-making that Sarah had. I thought that was a really good point, just exactly as you said, Ray, because that constant self-doubting and having that internal narrative, I think that is very familiar to women because you're constantly doubting what you're doing. If the decision that you're making is the right decision for your family, for your work, for all of that stuff, you're constantly second-guessing yourself and feeling it's that It's interesting. You have, that, you have that threaded through with Kate as well. She yeah. questions, is she doing the right thing as a parent? Even she questions her assessment of the situation that you know, the investigation that she's going after so it's, yeah that questioning thing I think is an interesting thing to explore and especially through crime I don't, it just seems to lend itself to that yeah absolutely and I think that it is a thread in terms of I guess women's narratives as you said we're not really encouraged or it's, it's not a standard thing that you immediately have that confidence in your own kind of assessment of the, the situation and you are encouraged yeah. to feel doubt and second guess yourself in how you're parenting in how whether you're doing the right thing whether you're you're too much time for yourself putting too much time for your career all of those things and I think yeah because you 
explore it in a specific way. And I guess in the torrent, I am really much, very much looking at, I guess, Kate's that juggle between work and life balance. Yes. And she feels that she's built up this career over the years. And so she does not want to give that up because just because I guess she's got kids. But at the same time, she's having to butt up against that assumption that she should not be here. She should be at home looking after herself. (laughs) And she's, yeah, she's pregnant, very heavily pregnant. That's right. I think she's 36 weeks. Yes, something like that. I knew you were going to ask me that. I think she hits 36 weeks in that second week, I think, yes. Yeah. But I really liked how you've broken the mould. We've got a police procedural with a female lead who has a full life and she has a healthy relationship with her husband, or it certainly comes across that way, and he is fully supportive of her career. Did you set out at the beginning to break that mould of the, I don't know, that desperate, yeah. drunken <laughs> yes. detective who can't get their life together? Yeah, I think so. Look, I don't think I consciously was doing it because very much I was writing for myself and obviously what I was processing at that time of taking care of young kids and trying to balance that my, that life myself was what then I put into Kate. Very consciously, I think that's the stuff I was grappling with, so that's the stuff I wanted to process. There was that reflection of I wanted to see someone that was different. Well, I wanted to see my experience reflected. Not so much, I guess, not even my experience necessarily, but just experience of women who I felt was that experience of just really highly competent women who were just good at their job and were professional and were just juggling. And this idea that you can't have this on the page, or it's not very much reflected on the page of just being competent and that being enough. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I just wanted that for Kate and I wanted her to have a stable relationship and for that to not be part of the story. But I think it's a really interesting storyline, romance and stuff and sexual tension. That's the stuff that makes stories. But in this really weird way, I wanted to go, okay, what if that was not part of the story? Can I still make it tense or can I make the story work? And it was almost like a little... Thing to myself to see if I could do it because I actually remember having this conversation with a writer at the time and the this conversation back to me was like okay well if she is quote unquote normal like you'll have to make sure her world is just out of control because otherwise what's how's the reader going to react so it was that was a really interesting way of looking at what it. What was funny though what was funny is because their relationship was normal appeared healthy just it created a tension in itself because I kept waiting it was actually like oh please don't take that away from me so you did it's a funny thing it created a tension in by not doing what what is usually expected underpinned that that relationship through the novel for me isn't that interesting because actually you're probably I think the third person who said that oh man I was waiting for you to wreck the relationship <laughs> And you didn't, thank God. And I was just like, oh, it literally never even occurred to me to do that. Because I was like, no. She got it. No. Yeah. Oh, she got in my notes here. Are you going to test that relationship in the future? <laughs> like, I just, yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it was, it, that's true. Like, there could be a future thread, but it literally never occurred to me in this book. And it's funny how so many people have said that back to me that it's really actually quite funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, now, I have a question for you oh, because okay. it's, I've reread your book Ooh. and it's hard to believe this is your debut oh. because you've not only tackled a police procedural, which I'm in awe of, uh, considering you're not an ex-cop or anything, but you have multiple points of view, you have little timelines, you even have two cases that all need to be solved by the constraints of Kate's pregnancy. Like I think she's got a week left of her, before she goes on maternity leave and she's got a burgeoning stomach. Like I am just... In awe of such a deftly crafted plot that you've created and drawn together and the huge community of characters, did you plot this out? Are you a pantser? Did you have a technique for keeping everything in line? Oh, dear. That sounds really, yeah. (laughs) No, I definitely, I think I just jumped in without really thinking too much about it. In saying that, I always had that final image in my head. So I knew where I was working towards. Okay. So I had the ending. I definitely had the ending. And you had Kate? 
Oh, yes, I had Kate. Yes. So I had Kate Kate in the sense that, yeah. So when I started writing, it was like, oh, look, there's a detective. Oh, where did she come from? Okay. And then, of course, <laughs> and then it's, and it essentially is just kind of a version of me. <laughs> but it, it's basically a story where I can control the piece, right? Where all the, the very similar issues that I was trying to grapple with, but I can control the pieces because it's a piece of fiction. But what I started with was obviously, yeah, definitely Kate as a character. And I knew it was a detective story. And that very much, I think, looking back, that was very much my love of crime fiction. I think it literally never occurred to me to write anything different. I don't know if it was the same with you, but it literally, when I started writing, it did not occur to me to write anything else. And I was always... At this point in my life, I can't. Yeah. It's just just where my brain goes. Yeah, exactly. So the minute I started thinking about storylines, it was always about, oh, what's the plot twist? What's the thing? What's the mystery? It always went back to that. So that's so... The genre was never in question. So it was always crime fiction. Here we had the detective. But then what I started off with was that final scene. And then I also knew I wanted two seemingly unconnected plot lines that would come together. And so when I was writing, that did give me a structure in its own way because in my head I went, okay, well, each chapter is going to alternate and I'm going to try and do one chapter in one plot line, one chapter in the other plot line. And that kind of gave me a structure as I went along, which I didn't really think about at the time, but it made it then come together in a way. So I didn't really. It works know. really well. Yeah. Works really well. Yeah. And the then and now, I like that. Yeah, that gave it the bits of the story which you couldn't really get from Kate's point of view. In relation to your writing sort of the crime novel as well, and I was just wondering what led you to the decision to write a thriller specifically because obviously with crime fiction there's so many ways you could go about it and your novel in particular has been described as almost like a born time adventure, not adventure, but like a thriller, full action packed, but it absolutely centres the female protagonist as part of that, as that action lead, which is not always the case or certainly not traditionally the case in that kind of thriller genre. So why did you want to do that? Look, it was actually really important to me to have an everyday person, a woman, everyday woman, be in the hero role. That I didn't want her to have any skills. She wasn't an ex-cop, ex-CIA, ex-martial arts instructor or anything. I just wanted her to be an everyday person dealing with an extraordinary circumstance and throw things at her as much as I could. You talked before about kind of processing your own <laughs> life and world. And I suppose in a sense that where, that's where the kernel of the idea came from me because I did work in Northern Ireland and I hadn't ever really, I got home from Northern Ireland and went, well, that's that then yeah. and put it away. So it, in a sense, I got to do some of that. It wasn't intentional and she's certainly not me and yeah, but it was wanting, I wanted to see an everyday person handling a situation that I kept wanting to ask, well, what would I do? How would I manage this? My children, we all say, well, I certainly, you know, I'd do anything to protect my children, anything. But then how do you balance up which of the children you protect? How do you balance up who else gets hurt in the process? How do you process? Yeah. So I... What ifs and moral questions are things I really like to explore. And I think most of my, like my next novel will be the same. It explores moral questions and, but from the view of a, an everyday person. Yeah. A woman, yeah, no, I guess, I, in this sense. Yeah. And I think it makes it more poignant, doesn't it? Because I think you're exactly right, because it puts the reader in that position. What if I was going through this? What decision and what flawed decisions would I make? Because there are some yes. points in Sarah's story where she's like, she's on the border of making some fairly interesting decisions. And, and you're and yelling at her, going, don't. <laughs> don't do that. Yes. Yeah, but exactly. But it is that pressure situation because she's under pressure from so many different angles and it is what would you do what how far would you go to protect your kids and I think that parenting aspect which I really enjoyed in how Sarah interacted with with her kids and I love the way how you had kids of all different ages and that interaction is obviously different with you know the teenager Mm -hmm. teenagers Yes, because uh, I really liked how you did that where, like, how far do you let them have that in- independence and how far do you let them go, but also you have your life experience and you what's going to happen when they do that thing that you're trying to warn them against, that push and pull, which I really enjoyed in yeah. those conversations and how you built those relationships, yeah. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, I enjoy looking at that because it is, I think parenting is a constant process of stepping away, letting them go. And it's, but what if you can see around a corner that they can't see around? How much should you protect them? And also how much is your own history colouring that? Are you trying to protect them from something that actually wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that with all parents. We all have that with our children. We all want to do the best we can, yes. but still allow them to be their own person. Yes, that constant, yeah, it's that really interesting constant kind of rubbing up against each other of your own individual needs and then you as a parent and then your own knowledge as an adult versus you know, letting them go and make their own mistakes and, you know, all that that rubbing against each other. Then you've got two parents yes. and your different styles. Different. Yeah, exactly, like ever is going what's the issue he's going off to play soccer what is the issue and Sarah's like oh but it's yeah there's a real issue <laughs> anyway yeah no it's yeah. really up. and I, like, I think there's a conversation between uh, Sarah and one of the daughters it was just a really short conversation but it was just so telling of that parent relationship which was I think she was talking about was it the Anne Frank book and then yes. Sarah talks about it like she steps back and goes oh like compromises you have to do as an adult and then and the daughter's reaction is like you always tell us to stand up for, for ourselves and now you're blaming me for taking a stand and it's so true you could you have those conversations yourselves with your kids and you're trying to go in one way and they're like no but why are you blaming me your yes. reaction yeah. where I'm taking a stand yeah oh that was so well done yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I think the relationships part of it, while it is a thriller and it has a lot of action through it, it's each of the relationships that matter to me. So coming at it from a character point of view and the influence of her father, of her mother, of, of her ex-husband, the kids, everything. That That's what interests me, why people do the things they do, how they're inf- influenced by others. That, that kind of, even though there's a lot of outward events impacting the plot it's that that drives it for me is her trying to find her way through it protecting the people she loves yeah exactly and it's always the welfare of those people in the end that she has that that kind of forms the heart of the book and that it certainly forms her motivations for making sure she tries and goes on the journey that she does and she fights so hard for those people see I thought that was interesting with Kate because she has to balance the welfare of her own family and her own, she's pregnant. If she is in peril, her baby is in peril. Yeah. So you've got that whole angle there of her having to balance a, a, the, her job, which is solving crimes and protecting the community and all that, with her family. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic to to explore because there's so much within it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one of the triggers like, for writing it because. In thinking about how hard that juggle was for me, I kind of, oh, what would that look for a what would that look like for a police officer? Because it is not just the work-life balance, but just exactly as you said, it is the balancing of that really challenging professional world with the things she sees, the things she has to process, and then mm. coming home to sort of Lego and Play-Doh and whatever. Yeah. And, and that is in again in itself that jarring and she has to switch off and on of those things. And I think there's so many police officers out there who are having like who have family. And yes, of course it's an incredibly stressful job. And I don't for one minute take away from the fact that there are a lot of broken relationships in, in that profession and there Absolutely. are a lot of people who who aren't processing things well and there's a lot of trauma associated with that so I'm not for any minute I'm lessening that or playing that down in any way but at the same time I also wanted to center the fact that there are for want of a better word those hard-working people who are trying to make their families work as well and whilst make it all work yeah, make it because it's just like any in that sense. It is like any other profession because whatever the challenges are in whatever profession you're doing, you're still mm-hmm. trying to make your family work. And there are people like that. And to be perfectly honest, I guess the police uh, people in my life, my neighbor's a police officer, and we've got a family friend who's a police officer and now he's a criminal barrister. And they all have family and they've made it work you know what I mean despite the challenges yeah. whilst yes there are people those addictions there are those broken families there are absolutely all of that and that's across society the police and first responder families of course have probably a higher volume of that because just because of the nature of their work and the stresses associated with that so I get that but I also then wanted to go okay but there must be another side there must be families just working to make it and what would that look like what would that stress look like the fact that it has to be 
for it to work, it has to be from the family unit. Her partner has to be supportive of her job, her leaving, her being pregnant on the job, like all of it. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And yeah, it is, it's really interesting to see you develop really kind of new character and a new kind of idea of a character who's just trying to make it work. Yeah. It's not all about the job. It's not all about home. It's blending everything. Yeah. Um, that's what, yeah, really, it was really interesting to read. I enjoyed it a lot and can't wait to read more about it because of that. Oh, thank you. And I think it's that, that is interesting because in, in centering the most relatable characters, the characters that we literally see every day in our in our lives. These are the women I see. We you've created something radical. Like it's so weird. How mm. That's so interesting because again, like that's the reviews that comes from your book. You go, oh, we're so used to seeing Jason Bourne, right? Yeah. Where's the female equivalent? Where's the female equivalent? But also not just dealing with a terrorist attack. You're dealing with a completely family centric issue. But putting putting her in that action role, and I think that's sort of that difference because exactly as you say, normally if there is a female role, she is ex CIA, ex military, and she's blah blah blah, and she's got her skills exactly, and so she's essentially just a male in a you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's- I, that was the other thing. I wanted a very female character in the sense that the anxiety and all of that I think is part. Of, I'm not saying everybody is, is can get anxiety, but that the way in which she manages herself through the book and the question constantly questioning herself I think is a fairly in my experience female female centric I'm not saying that men don't but yeah it was just it was important to me to do that with her and and see what that brought to a story yeah the female because I think it's also people have said the movie Taken but Liam Neeson's character in Taken is a ex FBI or all kind of thing yeah so I suppose you could put a man in that that's the fugitive, isn't it? <laughs> Where he's a, an everyday guy. He's a yes. Yeah, but it's no, funny. I keep talking about movies. I can't. There's books wise. I I haven't yes. seen a lot of it. Very interesting. Yeah, no, it's great. But look, and I think as an industry, it is definitely moving in those directions. But I, you know, certainly what my publisher said to me was, like, we need to see those stories on the page of commercial fiction because mm. that's you know, those are the everyday stories that we all read, and we need to see that to normalise it. You know, to go, oh yeah, why isn't the woman in there? Or oh, why isn't the man? Yeah. In the so you need to see those roles to go. Oh yeah, we're moving to normalising exactly. Yeah, but, across yeah. the board of human experience. Yeah, not putting people in boxes. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to really chat to you about one of the key components of The Good Mother is that you really explore the, sort of, the Northern Irish kind of troubles and all the lingering kind of fractures that it has caused. And I just wanted to talk to you about your experience you know, having worked there and then how you decided to put that into a story and sort of the various, I guess, the two tribal sides and how I really like that kind of author note where you talk about how it's entirely interchangeable which side you chose and that that experience of having that very tribal view of each other. Yeah, can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. When I went over there in my mid-20s towards the end of the Troubles, which is a sectarian was a sectarian conflict between Republicans and Unionists, so people that wanted to stay with the UK and people that wanted to leave and go. It's way more complicated than that. If yeah. you're interested, look it up at a history because I by no means uh, am an expert. So I went over there with uh, the idea of taking, initially I was taking kids from bandit country, which was an area of Northern Ireland that was deeply affected by the Troubles. Republican paramilitaries controlled the area. It was known as IRA country. And I was to take them away on summer camp and kind of just do activities with them and try and explore different ideas with them Um, because I had a drama and music background. Very quickly learnt that it's such a simplistic thing to go into any country, any culture that is not your lived experience and... The most I could offer was this is my experience. So the kids would say, what does your army look like? And I'd go, I don't actually know. I'm not sure. I think they wear green. (laughs) And they were just, what? They just couldn't. I didn't, I'd never seen a gun. I had never seen a tank. I had never seen, yeah, the the helicopters. Oh, yeah, all of that. And the low-flying helicopters with the spotlights on you and just, living life under that kind of oppression and 
visibility and threat. So I had that experience. I left after I was there for a year and I came home and the peace accord happened and it was like, yay, Ireland's at peace. And then it was always sat with me like, how do you go from that, Mm. which has got huge generational trauma and you've been taught your entire life to think one way and you've dehumanised other people or they've been dehumanised for you through your education, through your church, through your community, through the pain inflicted on you. How do you function as a society after that? How do you move forward? How do you, yeah, so that was to pin the beginning of the book for me. I wanted to see where where those people would go. What do you do if your only skills are bomb making and kidnapping? You're raised to do that from the age of six. And I had six-year-olds coming up to me and their job was to decide to figure out who I was and whether I was a threat or not. That was six. Yeah. Six-year-olds here just go for a bike ride and even then they've got everyone around them, surrounding them, protecting them. I don't know. It's just... It, how do you process life just because the politicians have said now there's a peace? So I was really interested in that. And, and obviously within that I made some amazing friends and connections over there professionally. So there was a lot of discussions backwards and forwards with them about their experience. And then you had the added thing of Brexit being talked about when I was writing the book and a lot of fear around the consequences of that and some of it has been seen and some of it hasn't. And yeah, I suppose I set it around a place that I had some experience of but thought when you come from, I can only speak from my experience, I come from Australia, I haven't seen much unrest, I haven't, I accept that there are other people that have had a lot of drama here as well. But I felt like I could explore it through an outsider's point of view in a country that I had actually experienced something. I hope I've done it respectfully. It was really important to me that I didn't demonise either side because ultimately every human just wants to be safe, their family to be safe, food, shelter, you know, love. So I hope that I've managed to do that because obviously within a thriller you still need an antagonist. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it, it was important to me that I could have done it with either side. Yeah. yeah. No, and I think that was certainly as a reader that very much came through. For As a reader, I think the world in a way has moved on from that conflict. And I thought what you did was really bring it back to as you said, those ideas around generational trauma and like through characters like it, I think it was Jerry and Liam and you looked at, I guess, their like kids born into that world who have never seen anything else and have no concept of anything else and they don't see a way out because they literally don't realise that there's another way of living. And I thought that was really well done and some of those kind of ongoing kind of fractures and how a society moves on and in a way, I guess, they have... It's almost like it's decided, okay, we've moved on. <laughs> we've moved on. Yes. But as you say, some characters and some people will be left behind in that because, as you say, they have only, they, when they were growing up, they only had certain skills or they were only taught those certain skills. So where are they under the new system? Everyone's moved on, but what happens to them? You're talking about, a, you're talking about a society that still, well, I, so I went back in 2016 and they still have a wall that divides the most volatile areas. And when I say it's huge and it's long and it's been up longer than the Berlin Wall was. Yeah. And they close the gates at night so you can't go from one side to the other and they still have the unionist areas still have the red, white and blue up the footpath and there's still flags. There's, it, every, every side, there's still all of that around you yeah. forming worldview and it's a, there's a, a undercurrent of violence and that's just there all the time yeah that's it so much has been done there's a lot of rejuvenation and a lot of money has been poured into northern ireland they really have tried to build it up in a different way but it's also got one of the highest levels of human trafficking in the world yeah wow okay because you've got large groups of people with skills yeah wow that haven't been addressed and haven't been retrained and what are you going to do yeah, yeah. apply your skill to another it's, it's an interesting and I think I'm looking at it through the prism of just Northern Ireland but I think as a someone who comes from a, a fairly peaceful world 
life country helps inform me of people that come into our country as well yeah as refugees and stuff like and this idea they should just get on with it and I think yeah absolutely that's simple exactly you know I've got friends that can't get over someone that says something horrible to them in the school car park so true exactly and I think you're right because I think the, the point of books and certainly reading is that you can read a novel about a different country and that experience and then you actually when you think about it it is absolutely paralleled in different ways in the country that you might live in or in that some of the people that you meet and there's obviously a lot of trauma that's not spoken in, in Australia's history and um, absolutely and and things that are kind of structurally still going on and things that we're certainly parts of the community want to move away from or move on from and go, why aren't you getting over it? And all those kind of terrible narratives that are constantly talked about, but actually those things are generational. It doesn't go away. I think the more we get an insight into someone else's experience, the more we can show them compassion and hopefully be a part of the solution. Yeah. I don't know. And I think that issue is all about having those conversations I think that's the kind of great thing about talking about writing and books because it opens up conversations about broader issues where you Mm. write certain things but they open up far broader issues and hopefully that's that's the great thing about book clubs and people talking about books and reading books because yeah it takes you into a different place that's great even the fact like with yours about talking about that that people can woman can be career-centric and trying to make home life work and the husband can be the support and yeah it generates conversation and ideas. Yeah, I guess that's really what they want to talk about whenever they, whenever I have a conversation about the book, that is the issue that they really want to talk about because I guess it's different. And I didn't realise that there was that gap in the market, not so much in the market, but you don't really realise that, that It's gap a point of difference though. Until yeah. you see it on the page and go, oh, that's right, all the detectives I have read are not this. And that's when you realise it's different. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I hear about your publishing journey. I think I've heard you say that you started started writing for you yes is that correct yes absolutely okay so you you started writing for you putting a story down on page that was in your head but at what point did you be I can do something a little more with this yeah no absolutely at the start of writing this it was very much a process of wanting something for myself or finding something for myself that was entirely not to do with being a mother, being a wife or an employee or anything like that. So really carving out. Carving your own space. Absolutely. Yeah. That's That was all it was about. And in doing that, then I guess I went, okay, I'm going to do something and I'm very kind of goal-oriented or task-oriented, whatever that word is. Anyway, I went, okay, well, if I'm going to do something, I, I need to have a goal. And so I went, okay, well, I'll write a novel or write a, I'll write. I needed to have something at the end of that. Yeah. So I started writing this novel and it, then it became almost like a bet with myself. Can I do it? I've decided to do this thing. Well, can I do it? And so it was a, it was very much a bet with myself to see if I could do that. Like I think, I think that first draft took about, I think maybe seven, eight months, something like that. And okay, now I've got this thing, I've got like a novel. <laughs> and that's when the ego came up and went, oh, maybe you can. And of course, not literally not knowing anything about the writing community or the publishing industry or anything. I went, oh, I guess you must just send it out. Isn't that what you do? Literally my vomit draft and that's what you do, isn't it? So I literally didn't know what I didn't know. And I, at that stage, uh, because I, you know. Which is a beautiful thing, by the way. It is because it really, because you don't have any voices in your head. You don't have any knowledge about anybody or what the process is or how hard people have been trying to achieve this dream you don't have any of their voices in your head to go hang on are you who the hell are you why the hell who do you think you are like what are you doing here and like why do you think you can do this none of that was in my head I just it was just me and the and the laptop and so it was quite freeing because I just did whatever I did and because I didn't know anyone in the industry I just searched and found a like a manuscript evaluation service and I sent it off to them and they, they ripped it apart like that. Absolutely like tore it to shreds. <laughs> Amongst all the things that they went, this is not working, were some things that they went, I really like the character, the dialogue is excellent and the story kind of flows. So I went, oh, okay. And that gave me that thing. I went, oh, okay, there's a kernel of something in here. And when they gave me that feedback, I went, oh, now I've got something to work on and that 
drove me forward. Like it, it gave me more incentive. For some people that would be maybe would take that as a negative thing and go, oh God, I'm terrible. But actually it went, great, now I know what to do because yes, yes. Because I'd reached the end of my knowledge at that point, right? And someone gave me the benefit of their knowledge from the industry and went, this is not working for these reasons. You need to work on X, Y, and Z. They didn't tell me how to fix it. They just went, this is not working. And I went, okay. And then I started to restructure it and and, and then I gave it to someone else. and And it just went from there. And I always benefited from feedback and someone would go, okay, this bit's not working, this character, this... 10 million points of view in here. Why is that? It's like an, it's like an apprenticeship, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely, that's exactly. And I call it my apprenticeship novel. So I am the most surprised that it got, you know, published in that <laughs> because for me that, because by that time I had entered the writing community and people talk about the apprenticeship novel, the novel that sat in the drawer. And I was absolutely, and absolutely mm. convinced that, that was my novel. That was my, because I was learning how to write while I was writing this thing. So never occurred to me that it would make it and in, in, and in the way that it did in such a kind of yeah, a... Yeah, <laughs> So how did you get to that point of entering it for the Banjo Prize? Yeah, it wasn't because I thought that I would win, like have any kind of getting there. It was more the fact that in my mind, I think it's really hard when you submit to a slush pile because who knows when it'll get read, right? Like Absolutely. It'll be, it could be years. It could literally be years. Whereas a competition... They are required under the rules to read it. <laughs> if someone is reading this, which is very different right. to a slush pile. So within that six-month competition period or what, eight months, whatever that is, mm. someone from this publishing house will be reading it. And that literally is all I wanted because in my mind I had an Excel spreadsheet which listed all the publishers and the agents <laughs> And I went, okay, so that person's Harper Collins will reject it, tick, I can move on to the next publisher. And then, yeah, yeah. that one will reject it, tick, I can move on to what it was about. And to me, I was looking for an in with each of those publishing houses to go, okay, do they have a... But you made sure you had a quality product before oh, you yeah, did no, that. Of course, you of course. Send that very first. God. So this was after many going yeah. through that process. In saying that, no, I did... Back in 2018, sent my very first draft, and like it's embarrassing even admitting that. But again, that was no, it's not. You just had you didn't know what you didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know, and that is stone cold silence from that point of view. But you know, (laughs) yeah, so it shows what a vomit draft versus a draft you've been working on for like two or three years the difference between those two things, yeah. So, I had no what's the word like intention or anything behind it apart from knowing that someone has get it in front of it. So, then when the competition results came out and clearly I wasn't in it, I would move on. That's in my head, that's what it was. So, there was no expectation, and so it was just an amazing, yeah, amazing ride after that. brilliant it's so good now let's go into your publishing journey because yours has been quite an (laughs) interesting story and I think it it shows the very different parts that you can get to the same point in do you know what I mean and I think it's a really if you talk about the roller coaster ride of publishing I have been on on that ride (laughs) I have been so lucky I have had some amazing encouragement and support in a very early day. I same like you said, I just had a story I wanted to tell. I had sent my daughter off to high school. I just wanted to do something for me. That was mine. So I, I did my vomit draft. And as part of that, I, I went to some courses. I went to Sydney Writers Festival one day, like a craft course. And it was with Mark Lamprell. He's a writer and director and producer so we did never too late the movie last year no 2020 I think it was anyway we had to pitch our stories as part of the thing and I did that and he gave me some great feedback but the next day I was just at one of the more public events and he got off stage and came down to me and handed me his card and he said I need you to email me (laughs) no idea like that that was any and then he said I love your story it's unique you get it done get it So you've got a draft, but get it finished, get it to the quality best you can do and then send it to me. So I did. And he, the response was fantastic. He said, I absolutely love it. You've nailed the story, nailed the dialogue. Now you need your writing apprenticeship. So I did a mentorship for a year with Catherine Heyman, who wrote, I think her book Fury came out last year. 
And she's a very literary writer. She's such a skilled teacher. I learned so much from her. And we went through the draft 10,000 words at a time. So I'd hand her 10,000 and the first 10,000 I handed her, I went back to my writing group afterwards and went, oh, my God, I don't know if I can ever do this again (laughs) because she was very tough, but it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. And she went through, I had to apply each 10,000 like each time and then we went back to the beginning just to bookend it. So even that, just understanding a booking the first chapters and last chapters. So I'm very grateful to her. And when I finished that, Mark gave it to his agent and she took me on and she was convinced it would be a, a bidding war or there'd be a lot of interest. And it was crickets. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, because I've had all this high and then it was yeah. like nothing and, and there was no real reasons given that were, were that, that I could change what I'd done. I was all for give me feedback, I'll make it work, I'll make it work, I'll make it work. I'm a problem solver, I want to try it. Sort of. But it was all, oh, the writing's good and it, it just, it wasn't, it didn't find a home. And so I sent it off for, uh, we parted ways just because she wasn't really sure what else to do. And I sent it off for a manuscript assessment. And as a result of that, I got another agent, which was incredible. Like she approached me and, and same process happened. Came close a couple of times, but just didn't get over the line. And then she closed her agency. Wow. At which point I went, okay, maybe this is the universe just speaking to me. Done. It goes in a box in the drawer and maybe I'd be writing. Maybe I'm just barking up the wrong tree here. But I had an amazing writing group behind me who were like, no, this story needs to at least be out there. Come on, you can do it. Just just put it out there and then you, it, it's worthy of being read. Yeah. Which was beautiful of them. And then I had a couple of other people within the industry say a similar thing to me. So I decided to self-publish. And so I did that in December 2020. I got it professionally edited and I got a professional cover designer and put it out into the world with literally no expectation. Well, happy to sell 100 copies. That's, I think that's about the average of the self-published book. And I got a lot of support from family and friends and then just slowly bits and pieces started happening and got a, an email from Belinda Audio Publishing and they offered to do an audio version of it and I was like wow okay and this came from a sight impaired lady who wanted who was part way through it and just really wanted the relaxing wow. nature of having it narrated so it came organically and I got some amazing and I'm very grateful for reviews from like the Sunday Telegraph and things like that and then I, I thought nothing of it and started writing the next one and then a friend in August last year contacted me and said Oh, congratulations. It's amazing. I said, what? <laughs> oh, you've been shortlisted for Bennett Kelly, are What? No, no. Uh, Ned Kelly, best debut fiction. And I was like, no, no, I, I, I think you might have read it wrong. I, I haven't been contacted. Anyway, I had been. It was extraordinary. I, in the kind of initial days of publishing, of self-publishing the book, I'd obviously entered the competitions. I don't know trying to get get more visibility but it was not on my radar there's no way there's some amazing debut books in Australia and just yeah wouldn't have even it wasn't on my radar so being shortlisted for the Ned Kelly tipped my entire writing life around again and within two weeks I had signed with Jean Rickman's at Cameron's agency and I had a two book deal with HarperCollins and yeah, it was just incredible. Like I went from in two weeks, my entire life changed. And yeah, I was plodding along trying to write my second book. And then, yeah, it's so I, I think I've lived all the different experiences yeah. of publishing. It's such a lovely story because it's, it is about being trusting those words and a story that it, it has all the things it needs to have. And sometimes, that thing about timing with publication or the publishing industry, I should say, it's very much yeah. about time. And this, I think that's that's just so organic that you would get the reviews, you would get the audio deal with people just going, I just love this story and can I hear it through audio? And, you know, I mean, I think that's an enormous kind of compliment to your writing and to the fact that there's this amazing kind of writing community that is willing to just send books and stories. Absolutely. And when they like something, they're like telling people about it and it just builds its own momentum and suddenly they know and it's, 
you know, it's there. And then Kelly, that was such a gorgeous kind of two weeks of just social media just going nuts. It was just so lovely. It was just insane. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It was way out of what any expectation I had. I would say any publishing journey is a a process of luck. Mm. I do think some luck. I think you make your own luck as well. I think and the relationships that you form and I'm talking genuine connections yes. and relationships, not, oh, I'm going to befriend this person because of what they can do for me. I'm a, a genuine to and fro helps make your luck, but you also have to do the work. So with each and every person through that process that supported me, hmm. I did the work. I cannot tell you what draft this novel is. And it, it got redrafted again with HarperCollins. There's new words, there's new scenes, there's, yeah, it's, it was about 10,000 new words. Like it's, yeah, yeah. it kept evolving and I kept working. I have to say I'm not sure I can ever do it again <laughs> on that book. <laughs> I, I love it. Yeah, you definitely get to that stage. Absolutely. I can so understand that that process as well. Because with every person who gave me feedback, it was me completely redrafting it. And just certainly isn't the version that you vomit drafted three years ago. No. Years ago. Can't remember now. But it, yeah, because you absolutely have to keep working at it and working at your craft. Oh. Trying to, and I think the feedback like they see that as well. I don't think like yeah. they, they give you that because they know you're willing to do the work to get it to that stage. And I think for me at least I have had that professional experience where because I write professionally in terms of being in the environment sector, we do a lot of writing and so the documents we write, I get it like there's you know, numerous rounds of internal <laughs> review, but then it goes to the client and the client will review and then there's a client legal review and then it comes back. And if you're like, if you don't have a thick skin for getting feedback and having to rewrite, like it, <laughs> it's not going to work. In the, in the Absolutely. I think you have to embrace that yes. and find a way. I actually now love that problem solving element like someone will say to me oh this that and the other and I'll go oh okay and I love that kind of mulling process and then you wake up at two in the morning and go I've got it that's how I can solve it or you just you have to embrace that feedback as people trying to help you get better absolutely get better it's such a gift of someone else's knowledge. And it's such a gift. And time. Of, yes, exactly. Because you've got to read the thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's also sort of you are too close to these words. You are just way too close to what you're writing, and particularly once you've gotten through like a billion drafts. And it's only someone yeah. else can can look at it from that other perspective and go, no, actually, this bit's still not working. This is still sluggish. And, oh, you know, when you said this yeah. in Chapter 1 and now you're saying this in Chapter Who knew? I made every single car was red. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, who knew? Actually. What is that about? <laughs> I go, actually, so by the final proof edit, I was like, hang on, nine characters are tall. How can that be? <laughs> it's good water in the town it's good water <laughs> it was just like yeah and you, you've read it so many times and you're still catching this stuff right at the end and yeah it's this extraordinary thing because I think even with this the editors get to a point where they've read your manuscript so many times and they can't see it either so yeah it's it's extraordinary so with you so you got you, you won the banjo which is Oh, my gosh, extraordinary and incredible. So you knew you had that book, you had a deal for that book, but you were writing your second book at the time, is that correct? I was. So I took the classic advice given to emerging writers and new writers is that. Go you. Yeah, once you start getting to that querying stage, you need to start working on something else because otherwise you're just stressing and rejections and whatever. You, you need to have something else to occupy your mind. And so I very much took that advice. And at the end of the torrent, I was very much ready or the manuscript that became the torrent, it was named something else at the time. But like I felt like, oh, I knew exactly where Kate's story was going next. So it was absolutely in my head. And I just immediately started writing the second so yes I was just typing away on that and so then obviously this this, uh, the whole the wild ride of the banjo happened and yeah because that was in September 2020 and it only got released Mm. in 2022 so there was quite a bit of time in that between which I wasn't writing in all the time wasn't all that time wasn't spent on the edits you know there's quite a few um, long gaps in between so very much I could spend that time on writing the new one 
So we're very lucky that I managed to finish this second one before the print deadline of the publisher did. I had told her, yes, that I was writing a second one. She was like, okay, well, I'd like to see it. And and she had mentioned, look, there is this print deadline, so if you can get it before then and if we like it, et cetera. And, yeah, and it was that incredible luck where she loved the second one uh, and had gone through, okay, in terms of rewriting and stuff like that, I think one of the advantages of doing the edits for the tone at the same time is that I learned I still had that learning experience. So all the things that I learned from the very arduous process and the very long process of the torrent essentially went into the second into. one. And the second one was a much quicker process because I was almost, I almost knew the rules per se, inverted commas, but the rules like what yeah, yeah. an actual book had to do, i.e. be interesting and make you pretend <laughs> you couldn't just write just random things. Had to. <laughs> Sorry. So I had implemented all of that. So certainly the second time around, it felt like I had I was editing as I went. When I got to the end of it, it felt like a fifth or sixth or seventh draft of yeah. what they, yeah. the torrent was. Do you, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So when I gave it to my publisher, my agent, they she loved it a few. And, and whilst when we did that, we also put together a little storyline or an idea for a third book and we pitched that to them Damn. as a two-book Thing and they were lovely enough to accept that. So yes, yeah, so now I have. It's so brilliant. Congratulations. Yeah. So and speak into the back of the torrents, the second one. So essentially, this year I'll be editing the second while writing the third. And now that I've actually got this two book deal, I'm like, oh man. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, hang on. Now that means I'm writing to deadline. Oh, okay, cool. That's good. I have this nice blank white laptop screen that I'm like, now what do I do? Anyway, yeah. So that's this year's challenge to get the edits uh, taken done and write the third one. That's very exciting. And the release has been amazing. You've had incredible reviews. You've had the industry has just come out in full support, deservedly so. Deservedly so. You are a huge advocate for other authors as well. But the book is, it's great and it deserves it. And it's getting, it's oh, amazing. It's just so exciting for me to see this happen for you. Thank you so much. It is overwhelming because in my head, I'm that person that's gone, look over there. And everyone's looked and I've managed to jump on the train and no one's asked for a ticket. That's what I feel <laughs> like. At some point, I do have to kind of accept it. But yeah, I've been incredibly lucky and I'm so grateful that it's resonated because that's the thing, you release this stuff into the world and I guess the thing for you is that it resonates with readers. This extraordinary yeah. kind of, I don't think you can explain that feeling to someone where they are literally sending you text, texts and personal messages. Yeah, when someone gets it. Yeah, and how much yeah. it meant to them and you're just like, wow, it's become their thing now. It's literally the same as how I consider the books that I have on my shelves and the authors that I love enough. Oh, man, they've like put me on their shelves. It's such an incredible thing. So to take it from that to just a smidge, because there's always highs and lows. Yes. <laughs> Did you have a low? Have you had a point that you've had to work your way through? Look, I think there have been moments through that year, like that year of in between, I guess, winning and publication. But it and it, it is that idea of do I deserve it? And I think the win makes it bigger, like it's some, somehow ballooned because I just assumed that if I was ever lucky enough to get published, it would just turn up at a bookshelf and that'd be it. Like it wouldn't be, oh, it comes with the fact that it's won this thing. And so for me, it was like, wow, God, can I maintain that expectation? And there was so much love, I guess. This is the only way I can explain it, that I went, oh, man, but you guys haven't read anything I've written. Like, you know, what if it doesn't meet your expectations? Because it's literally the first words I'm putting out there and they are already like, oh, my God, and they're already on board and I'm just, you haven't read anything. Am I going to meet your expectations of this? And they're all people in the writing community who you respect and people who you've read their work and you're like, I don't think I can meet that expectation. So, yeah, so that really spiraled in my head, I guess. I it's been the challenge. It's been yeah, one of the challenges. spiral in my head and it took me a long time to get, I think, used to or to make peace with the fact that anything you do is not going to be this perfect thing and make peace with the imperfect nature of this piece of work. It's fine and that's okay. Like it because it is yeah. as good as you can yeah. make it in that moment in time, 
you will always keep improving, but you will never have the brain of the your favorite author. They exist so that you can read them, not for you to become a very version of them. You just do Oh, you. that's, yeah. No, you, you just do you. Yeah, or you just do you as best as you can in that moment in time because I don't know the knowledge I don't know and I'll hopefully yeah. gain it by being interested enough in my craft that I want to keep learning and I'll keep doing that but this is not an end point this is a start starting point yeah yeah and I think it was just hard for me to come to terms with that and it certainly wasn't anyone putting that on me it was absolutely a pressure that I built up within myself but I'll just say one quick thing where you know one of the great things about the writing community is we've got this little Twitter debut book club going book club debut book gang as we call ourselves going but it's just basically 2022 the class of 2022 we're all releasing debuts this year one of the things and we've been meeting up through email and through zooms and one of the the other authors at another debut warren ward his book is lovers of philosophy but when we were having this zoom session with others and i was going on about my anxieties and he was saying i think he said something along the lines of i know i'm releasing an imperfect work out in the world and that's okay and i went oh yeah that's okay, isn't it? Like why? What's the issue with releasing something imperfect in the world? In fact, I am imperfect. And that's what you hope for, right? In life, you hope that you will be accepted with all your imperfections and your mistakes and your flaws and whatever. So why can't that be for a book? And I went, isn't that ridiculous that I've built it up in my head? So I'll always be grateful for that one line that he said in that moment in time where I needed to hear it, hear that. And then I went, oh, my God, Warren, thank you, because I, I remember I wrote that down because I went, yeah, it is the just being finding peace with the imperfect nature of your work. And exactly what I need to hear at the moment in relation yeah. to my second book. So, yeah, it's just, yes, it's yes. going to be imperfect and that's okay. Okay, isn't that? Yeah, exactly. So that's copyright Warren Ward. <laughs> <laughs> yay warren thank you <laughs> cool so i think we've uh, actually covered quite a lot we're getting i think we're getting we close are. to the end I mean, do you think certainly from my writing experience the writing community has really been a huge part and a huge kind of reason for partly and one of the biggest joys <laughs> absolutely and i don't really know what i would do without that that's been the kind of an amazing kind of side effect of this whole thing of taking on writing and just meeting all these people and being friends with all these people through the writing community. Yeah. Even like Pam and yourself and just this, it's quite a generous. The generosity of the community is astonishing to me. They'll share their craft. They'll share their views. They'll share your work. They'll share. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been an abs- it's been a highlight of the whole experience, to be honest. Yeah, and one, like you said, had no idea that it would happen. It yeah. wasn't even on my radar. Exactly. Yeah. But no, thank I- you to the Australian writing community. Huge thanks. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I just love it. And certainly I've really noticed it with the release. And I know you're going to notice it with the release, but everybody, like the other debuts and the other new release books, they just shout give a shout out to all their fellow authors like it's awesome like it's not just about you like in social media you're not just going on about you but they're tagging other authors when the the bookshops Mm. show pictures of books like oh yeah they're tagging everybody else and go yay i got a shout out but then they're tagging everybody else it's just yeah so it's all ahead of you and i'm very excited for that and it's gonna be great yeah so i think we'll might end it there it's been just so lovely chatting to you ray i'm so glad we got the opportunity to do this and thank you so much pam me too Yes, thanks, Pam and Rights for Women. We appreciate it. Absolutely. It's such a great podcast and so many great conversations. So if you haven't caught on to it, you really should. Yeah. So Ray's book is The Good Mother and will be out in April. So look out for it. And my novel comes out March 30. Oh, March 30. Sorry. March 30. I keep saying April. No, that's okay. March 30. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my novel is The Torrent and it's out now. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Ray, again, for doing this with me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tanuka. Bye. Hey. How about that? Such a great episode, wasn't it? I don't think Ray and Danuka gave us their their contact details. So you can find each of them via their websites, raycans.com and danukamackenzie.com. And you can find all the info to do with their socials there. I'm actually going to be doing a Facebook Live in a few weeks as well with Ray. And she has a, I guess, a book launch event coming up Saturday, April 2nd at Better Red Than Dead. I think at this stage of going to air, there's still a few tickets available for that. So if you'd like to come along, get onto the Better Red Than Dead website.
Congratulations to Ray and Danuka on their amazing books. I know that they're both going to do so well, and I just can't wait to see where these two fabulous writers go in the future. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>